0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Calvin Coolidge, who served as president from 1923 to 1929, never rated highly in polls the shy Vermonter, nicknamed Silent Cal, has long been dismissed as quiet and passive. History has remembered the decade in which he served as a frivolous, extravagant period predating the Great Depression. Now Amity Schlaes, the author known for her riveting, unexpected portrait of the 1930s, provides a similarly fresh look at the 1920s and its elusive president. Schlaes shows that the mid-1920s was, in fact, a triumphant period that established our modern way of life. The nation electrified, Americans drove their first cars, and the federal deficit was replaced with a surplus. Coolidge is an eye-opening biography of the little-known president behind that era of remarkable growth and national optimism. Although Coolidge was sometimes considered old-fashioned, he was the most modern of presidents, advancing not only the automobile trade but also aviation, through his spirited support of Charles Limburg. Coolidge's discipline and composure, Schles reveals, represented not weakness but strength. First as governor of Massachusetts, then as president, Coolidge proved unafraid to take on the divisive issues of this crucial period, reining in public sector unions, unrelentingly curtailing spending, and rejecting funding for new interest groups. Perhaps more than any other president, Coolidge understood that doing less could yield more. He reduced the federal budget during his time in office, even as the economy grew, wages rose, tax rates fell, and unemployment dropped. As a husband, father, and citizen, the 30th president made an equally firm commitment to moderation, shunning lavish parties and special presidential treatment. To him, the presidency was not a bully pulpit, but a place for humble service, Overcoming private tragedy while in office, including the death of a son, Coolidge showed the nation how to persevere by persevering himself. For a nation looking for a steady hand, he was a welcome pilot. In this illuminating magisterial biography, Amity Schles finally captures the remarkable story of Calvin Coolidge and the decade of extraordinary prosperity that grew from his leadership. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. This is episode 117 of season three, episode 182 of the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show podcast. Today is August 4th, 2021, Wednesday. And I just finished up this biography yesterday on my commute. I... Rather enjoyed it, and I want to talk with you about why that is. But first, I want to point out there are a number of other things I could talk about this morning. I could talk about this national review piece that was just sent to me by my cousin Micah Hirschberger, in which the Republicans in Congress have produced a report detailing. Over $600 million, which the Wuhan Institute of Virology spent on renovating its HVAC system just before or right around the time that COVID escaped Wuhan. Who spends $600 million renovating an HVAC system? Is it possible in any parallel universe, much less our own, to spend that much money renovating an HVAC system. It seems a bit fishy. It seems like somebody should be putting two and two together. Why is it that we're not more curious? I could talk about that, but I want to talk about Calvin Coolidge. I could also talk about the email I got Yesterday, saying that a fourth Capitol police officer has committed suicide. A fourth Capitol police officer who was involved in the January sixth protests, which somehow, some way, turned into protesters inside the Capitol building. A fourth police officer, Capitol police officer, has committed suicide. We are now eight months removed from that incident. How is it possible that four police officers have killed themselves? Did they actually kill themselves or were they suicided? Did they kill themselves because they know something which is haunting them, which they can't live with, couldn't live with now that they're gone? Who knows? I could talk about that. But I'd rather talk about Calvin Coolidge. So here we are. Calvin Coolidge has a very bad reputation. And it seems undeserved to me. Calvin Coolidge was an understated and restrained character in American politics in the 1920s. He was famous for saying things like, I do not choose to run for re-election. He ran one time. He had been vice president when Warren G. Harding was president. Harding died in office. And next thing you know, Coolidge becomes the 30th president of the United States. He finished up Harding's first term, or what would have been Harding's first term. Harding served from 1921 to 1923, at which time he passed away while in office. Coolidge took it from there until what would have been the end of Harding's first term. And then Coolidge won election on his own right. Coolidge was very popular among Republicans because he had handled a strike of Boston police officers deftly during his time as the governor of Massachusetts. Woodrow Wilson was president, and unions all over the country were clamoring for greater protections, better benefits, better pay, better working conditions. Wilson, being the progressive elitist that he was, was having a hard time taking a clear stand with regards to the Boston police strike in particular. He was equivocating because he was on the horns of a dilemma, as Democrats often are. Do we back this union because unions contribute quite a lot to our campaigns, typically vote for our tickets? Or when it is no longer in the public interest and it's hurting the public and it's doing far more harm than good and we might lose support among the public for the actions of this union, the disruptions of this union, do we rein in that union and risk its displeasure? Coolidge stepped into the situation at a time when Wilson was, was not being clear and he was not being decisive and actually Wilson saw Calvin Coolidge take the stand and followed suit himself because he saw that it was polling well but insofar as Coolidge got there first, Coolidge reaped the benefits more so than Wilson did. Wilson was playing catch-up with Coolidge. Coolidge deftly handled the situation restored law and order in boston whereas there had been rioting and violence and destruction and then he promptly refused to accept the return of the boston police officers who had abandoned their post this wasn't a question first and foremost of police officers getting better pay better benefits, better working conditions. Although those were legitimate concerns, and who knows how they were supposed to be addressed other than some form of strike, some form of collective bargaining. But they had abandoned their post. They had a job to do. They had stopped doing it because they didn't feel like they were getting enough compensation. And so Coolidge said... You're gone, you're done. Coolidge became president in the 1920s when a lot of things were kicking off that proved to be a major boon to American culture and development economically, which changed the world forever. Electrification of cities made it possible for household appliances, to reduce the amount of labor required from housewives, mothers, husbands, children to prepare their food, to clean their clothes, to cook their food, to preserve it, to watch television eventually, to listen to the radio. Coolidge was the first president to make radio addresses to address the public, he supported aviation at a time when it was not clear exactly how profitable man powered flight might be. But he saw the potential for economic benefit and also for military necessity in having development of better, safer aircraft. And yet, Coolidge was very restrained. The Roaring Twenties are thought of typically with scenes of The Great Gatsby, lavish parties, art deco, major construction projects, spending money like drunken sailors, the glory before the crash, before the Great Depression, in large part leading to the Great Depression. Or, so we're told we're told something not true that does not follow about Calvin Coolidge and the 1920s, that they were two peas in a pod. Coolidge being hands-off and passive led to excesses in broader society, which led to a reckoning with the Great Depression. But the more I've read Amity Schley's The Forgotten Man and Great Society, pertaining to the 1930s, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, also Lyndon Baines Johnson, several decades later. The more I read Schles, the more inclined I am to believe that the Great Depression has Herbert Hoover and FDR to blame. Herbert Hoover, you can see, rising up to the fore during Coolidge's administration Because Hoover is in the thick of everything. He is an interventionist who has to be everywhere and do everything. And he gets attention by doing things which Coolidge is not willing to do. Coolidge is very concerned about precedent and about long-term consequences for intervention at the federal level. He doesn't believe that every natural disaster requires a federal response. He believes that the response should come from the private sector in the form of donations. It should also come from the state and local level when it comes to bailout and financial relief. He doesn't believe that the president should be so central to absolutely everything. And so he is restrained. He gives short speeches. He has as his philosophy that it is better for the president and for lawmakers to take bad laws off the books and to cut spending than it is for them to add good laws to the books and be interventionist all the time. If Hoover had governed like Coolidge, if FDR had governed like Coolidge, the Great Depression would not have been what it was. Market corrections come and go, markets rise and fall. It's when you try obsessively to stop that natural cycle that you might find you delay the inevitable and you exacerbate the downturn when it comes. Businesses, economies thrive on confidence about what the future holds. But it's hard to make investments in the midst of uncertainty, and a major factor for uncertainty is what experiment is the government going to hoist upon us next? Hoover and FDR both introduced a great deal of uncertainty because they wanted to experiment. They wanted glory and credit for themselves and their hubris caused them to do more harm than good at the end of the day. It isn't that we say they did no good, but on the whole, when you add up your debits and credits, your ins and your outs, they did more harm than good. And their legacy should not be one of praise it should be one of caution. Hoover doesn't get a lot of praise because he was a Republican. Republicans are never quite as good at giving away free things to buy votes as the Democrats are. And insofar as we go halfway, we get all of the scorn without any of the praise. Hoovervilles, these shanty towns, tent cities filled with homeless persons, thrown out of work. Hoovervilles are what we remember Herbert Hoover by those and Hoover Dam, but he was not helping things to be so central all the time. Implicit in intervention is an implied statement that you can't You can't do this without me. It's like Obama's campaign slogan. Yes, we can. Seen in a different light. It's another way of saying, no, you can't. You can't do this without me. You can't do this unless I help you. And insofar as we become dependent, we lose confidence. We lose our self-sufficiency. We miss out. Something is being taken from us in that exchange when a politician obsessed with their own legacy intervenes when they should have been more restrained, when they should have been more like Calvin Coolidge, to be honest. Calvin Coolidge saying, I do not choose to run for re-election in 1929, 1928 rather. His saying, I do not choose to be president, is such an interesting statement. Why phrase it that way? I wouldn't phrase it that way. I would say, I choose to not run. I am not running. But he chose to say, I do not choose to run. And that was typical of Calvin Coolidge, you find out as you read Schley's excellent biography. It was typical of Calvin Coolidge to not choose which is a choice, but it's a distinct kind of choice. A, B, or C. M. Mm. D. none of the above. I do not choose any of those options. Why do you not choose any of those options? Because there's not only a benefit, there's also a cost. Coolidge did immeasurable benefit to all of us just by being in the historical record just by setting us an example, albeit for a short span, of what restraint looks like. If he had run again in 1928, he would have won re-election, and American history would have been very, very different. And there's a part of me that is frustrated with Calvin Coolidge for not having run for re-election. If you want to know my theory on why Coolidge did not run again. It has everything to do with his wife, Grace Goodhue Coolidge, a beautiful woman, full of life. She was opposite Coolidge in many ways. And I find it interesting that her mother was very opposed to her engagement to Calvin Coolidge, a fact which led to Coolidge and his mother-in-law being at odds and never reconciling. Calvin never forgave his mother-in-law for having rejected him as a match for her daughter, his wife. But Grace Coolidge, beautiful, full of life, fun-loving, graceful, elegant, was restrained very much by her husband. He was constantly encouraging her to be more down-to-earth, more modest, more simple, more restrained, like he was. And I think that by turn, her contribution to his life was to encourage him to be a little bit more lively, which he needed to be. You can be too restrained, too moderate. And she was a guard against that except six years into presidency, public life had them going in different directions. And I think he realized that when they were on a summer vacation as a family in the Black Hills of South Dakota. Coolidge announced he would not run again in 1928 while on vacation. And in typical Coolidge fashion, it was a terse, short Statement which you could not misunderstand, even if you didn't like it. I do not choose to run for president in 1928, he said. He followed up after the reporters had a chance to take that in by elaborating, If I take another term, I will be in the White House till 1933. Ten years in Washington is longer than any other man has had it. Too long. In his memoirs, according to Wikipedia, Coolidge explained his decision not to run. Quote, the presidential office takes a heavy toll of those who occupy it and those who are dear to them. While we should not refuse to spend and be spent in the service of our country, it is hazardous to attempt what we feel is beyond our strength to accomplish. End quote. There was an incident while the Coolidges were in South Dakota, in which, on a certain day, The president and the first lady were supposed to have lunch at one o'clock. And at one o'clock, the president is waiting. And his wife has still not returned from a long hike, which she had taken with her secret serviceman, Jim Haley. About an hour and a half after she was supposed to return, here she comes. They have a private word. Two days later, the secret serviceman, Jim Haley, has been reassigned. Coolidge was furious, had just been about to organize a search party when his wife reappeared. And I don't think that it is coincidental that Calvin, a short time later, announces he will not be running for re-election. Whatever happened, whether... Grace actually did get lost in the woods or something else. Coolidge realized in that moment, I believe that public office had taken too great of a toll on his marriage and his family life. And the very fact that Coolidge only lives for another four years after he gets out of the White House might have been something he was feeling. He was already feeling it that he didn't have many years left, and he didn't want to go out the way that Warren G. Harding had gone out. He didn't want to die in office. He wanted to live a little bit outside of the confines of Washington, D.C. and public life. Now He didn't fully successfully do that. He ended up writing a column, a regular column for one year, He ended up being invited to speak at the Republican National Convention and he criticized FDR for positions he was and was not taking. But perhaps that was for the best that he knew when to quit. He knew when that was enough. That was enough for him, for his lifetime. He had given enough, he had served enough, and if he held on longer It would undo the work that he had accomplished thus far, rather than cementing it. His family needed him, and he didn't have any more to give, he realized. That, to me, is so striking. It reminds me of the Roman general Cincinnatus, after whom Cincinnati, Ohio is named George Washington was often compared with Cincinnatus because George Washington was actually offered in some quarters a crown a throne we were going to have our very own King George in the form of George Washington but George Washington governed with restraint self-restraint how is it possible for someone to govern a nation when they can't govern themselves but By contrast, how much better to govern a nation by example, by personal example, governing oneself. Cincinnatus rises to the occasion in ancient Roman history, does his duty for his country, for his nation, for his people, and once the crisis has passed, he gives up his power and goes back to a quiet life of farming, because that's what... He really wants most is to live a quiet life working with his hands, like we read in Thessalonians. George Washington serves his time. Calvin Coolidge serves his time. You gotta know when to hold them, know when to fold them, know when to walk away, know when to run. You never count your money when you're sitting at the table. There will be time enough for counting when the dealing's done. I would highly recommend you check out Coolidge by Amity Schlaes. I was surprised to find out in the afterword at the end of the book that she works for the George W. Bush Presidential Library. She does say in her biography of Coolidge that Coolidge was opposed to personal vanity projects like presidential libraries. He was in favor of a national archive, but he was opposed to public funds being spent on presidential libraries. All the same, Amity Schlaes, the author of Coolidge, is working for the George W. Bush Presidential Library Project. She also is very involved in the Council on Foreign Relations, which I will be honest with you, I have a great distrust for. Something else I did not quite appreciate before, and I think this is a consequence of Calvin Coolidge being so understated, so quiet. Coolidge was president when the kellogg bryant Pact was being peddled. This treaty, which was going to end future wars, outlawing war as an instrument of foreign policy, He supported it. He worked for its passage and ratification by Congress. That, I think, was not such a great idea, but it is interesting. You have to take Calvin Coolidge with a grain of salt as somebody who recognized his own frailties to an extent which most men, particularly most men in high office, don't. Check out the book, Read it. Give it some study. See what you think. Shout out to Joseph Crampton, who I know is working on a review for a different biography of Calvin Coolidge. This one's for you, Joseph. For everyone else, as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.